0: So before Caroline comes up to continue our Lenten service and our series that we're doing, we get to hear from another Riverite. This time we get to hear from Emily. Emily leads the setup team, and she also helps coordinate the women's hangout and does lots of other things. (laughs) So please join me in welcoming Emily. Good morning. Uh, when the River Pastor shared the plan for this year's 40 Days of Faith, I was really excited by some of the new ways we were going to engage with this season, uh, particularly the online Bible passages and framing the big ask as prayer for breakthrough or new perspective. But when the first Sunday of Lent rolled around, I couldn't help but be concerned that there weren't enough things that we should be doing during this time. <laughs> In the past, there were more components. And this reaction is both a little ridiculous and very telling, given my past experiences with the 40 days and also the space I was in when this season began. First, this is my ninth 40 days of faith, and with the exception of maybe my first, I've never been able to keep up and do all of the things. And secondly, for the past two years, my primary goal in my approach to life and faith has been to come from a place of simplicity and space. A couple years ago, I had been walking home from work on a regular day, and in my mind, running through a very familiar conversation with myself. I was exhausted and overwhelmed, as usual, and I was looking ahead at all that I needed to accomplish, telling myself that once I just get through this next thing, whatever it had been at the time, some meeting or project or a million little tasks, that once I just got through that, I would have space in my life. Things would get easier, and I would have room for the other areas that I felt like I was neglecting. It was just a little bit further down the road. I just had to power through, and I would get there. And as I was giving myself this pep talk, a thought broke through that reminded me that this had been the dynamic in my life for a very long time, essentially my entire adult life, and probably even longer. And all of a sudden, it seemed so clear to me, I had set my life up in this way. It wasn't that I would somehow get to some magical point where circumstances would be different and I wouldn't be overwhelmed and barely keeping up. Looking back at the many ways over the years that I had overpacked my life, primarily with work, it seemed astonishing and almost absurd that I hadn't seen it in this way before. As convicting as this was, I primarily felt relief I knew what the problem was, and I began looking for resources to break out of this pattern. I've always felt like I receive a lot from reading, so I looked to books like Present Over Perfect by Shauna Niequist and Grace Not Perfection by Emily Lay. And through this reading, I realized how much my worth and purpose is wrapped up in hard work and achievement. And despite my beliefs to the contrary, how much I behave in a way that God's love and grace are things to be earned. This way of being is so deeply ingrained in who I am. Clearly, if I'm worried 40 days of faith isn't rigorous enough. (laughs) The only time I've ever allowed space in my life is in times of great failure or setback. And that is only because I'm at a point of severe exhaustion, where all my resourcefulness is depleted, or because the opportunities aren't as present. Usually, I find that when doors close, the windows don't immediately open. I'm sort of in that season now where I've had some setbacks professionally. And while that's been hard, I'm mostly so grateful for the space I now have. But I'm acutely aware that I have no idea how to hold on to it. Nor do I want to be in this space forever. While it feels freeing and open, it can also feel disorienting and without purpose. And as I get closer to the midpoint in my life, I'll be 39 this June, these challenges seem heightened. As if whatever structures or rhythms I have for my life, soon I'm going to settle here. So this is the space that I entered this year's 40 days. So the framing of this season as a time of breakthrough or new perspective was exactly what I needed. And not surprisingly, just like in past years, even with less things, I still haven't been able to totally keep up. Even with the added accountability of volunteering to share my experience at the end of the fifth week. My efforts have primarily been focused on the Bible passages, but maybe that's exactly what I needed, the opportunity to go deeper into one thing and live with the discomfort of letting some things go. As Jesus does with his parables within parables, I feel like the process of engaging with the Bible passages have taught me as much about God as the insights I've received. And my starting point for this was almost as low as it could be. I've never really felt like I could read the Bible on my own or hear God speaking to me through the passages. But to respond to the passages and the comments online, I felt I really needed to know what I thought. And because I didn't understand them on my own, and there were so many big ideas in the comments and in the passages themselves, I could only navigate that with God. Until this point, my interactions with God have felt a little distant or fleeting, like the one thought that seemed to be dropped from above on my walk home from work a couple years ago. Or, similar to my struggles in life, unbalanced. I'm either trying to do everything through my own power or passively waiting on God. But engaging in these passages have felt like a face-to-face, active, back-and-forth with God. For me, it looked like actively trying to figure it out. Rereading repeatedly, starting to write something, looking something up, checking a different translation all while continuing to ask God what he was trying to tell me if I was getting somewhere until I got to a place where I could feel God's voice in it. It is incredible to me how God is using this experience to reshape how I interact with him. And it's not lost on me that the very thing that pushed me to engage in this new way is that I was overwhelmed and couldn't see through all the things in the passage. While I haven't really been actively praying for breakthrough from all the things that overwhelm me in life, I feel like God is showing me a process to get there. And even with all that, God always has more for us. I feel like he has also been breaking down the ways I see my incorrect conceptions of faith reflected in the Bible. Things that have caused me to feel stuck and unable to move forward in my relationship with him. One thing that stands out a lot in Mark is the idea of faith, that faith is what you need to get your prayers answered, get healed, follow Jesus. And while I have been blown away by how much grace there seems to be in it, which has been really comforting and encouraging, it is also starting to drive me a little crazy because it feels very much like an achievement to me, another way to prove or earn my worth or God's love and favor, which I know in my spirit is not right. Pushing into that this week, I felt God redirect my focus to love. I touched on this a little bit in my comment on Wednesday's passage, But I felt God reminding me that love is always the starting point and the center. And not just in the way that I usually see it, as God's love towards me or us or the world, but that it is my starting point as well. That I don't need to figure out how to be faithful. That I should just start with loving God with everything I have. I'm going to read today's passage for us. This is Mark Chapter 14, verses 1 through 10 and 22 through 25. It was now two days before Passover and the Festival of Unleavened Bread. The leading priests and teachers of religious law were still looking for an opportunity to capture Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the Passover celebration, they agreed, or the people may riot. Meanwhile, Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy. While he was eating, a woman came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard. She broke open the jar and poured the perfume over his head. Some of those at the table were indignant. Why waste such expensive perfume, they asked. It could have been sold for years' wages and the money given to the poor. So they scolded her harshly. But Jesus replied, Leave her alone. Why criticize her for doing such a good thing to me? You will always have the poor among you, and you can help them whenever you want to, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could and has anointed my body for burial ahead of time. I tell you the truth, wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deed will be remembered and discussed. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve disciples, went to the leading priest to arrange to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted when they heard why he had come, and they promised to give him money. So he began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. Two days later, on the day of Passover, as they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take it, for this is my body. And then he, t- and then he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people it is poured out as a sacrifice for many. I tell you the truth, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new in the kingdom of God.
1: Thank you so much, Emily. That was beautiful. So as um morning my name is Caroline one of the pastors at the river good to see you all so as Emily shared um, her experience about um, reading through the book of Mark during this year's Lenten season which we call the 40 days of faith at the river we have been reading the book of Mark together so now it's uh, one week till the Easter Sunday we're nearing the end so today's story comes from chapter 14 um, out of 16 chapters in the book. The idea to read the book of Mark together and more deeply as a community came from um, listening to this podcast. Um, it's called The Bible for Normal People. Um, listen, um, the guest speaker that day was Daniel Kirk, a theologian. because um, It was very... Um, stimulating interesting conversation he had um, about the book of Mark and some of the things that we want to watch out for as we read the book of Mark one of the things that he pointed out that we should pay attention is uh, the book of Mark has several stories of uh, nameless women with faith nameless women of faith they're portrayed as those who understood who trusted Jesus when no one else seemed to understand Jesus or get what he was talking about. So I'm excited today's story happened to fall on one of those nameless women's stories. Uh, so she, as uh, the story we've read, she breaks open an expensive jar of perfume and anoints Jesus' head with it. Upsetting many people who were around, many men I assume. But Jesus defends her. He says, why criticize her for doing such a good thing for me? Good thing to me. Then he says that her deed will be remembered and discussed wherever the good news is preached throughout the world. It's not only a high praise, but also Jesus is linking the story of this woman To the good news of himself forever. They're linked forever. This is the only time that he does that. And it seems to have come true since a version of this story is told in all four gospels. And here we are remembering and discussing her deed thousands of years later. So why was it such a big deal that she anointed Jesus with perfume? It has to do with what Jesus has been saying and revealing to his friends up till that point. From about halfway point in the book of Mark, Jesus has been talking about his identity as the Messiah, the Son of Man, and that he has to die before he rises again. He keeps bringing it up, though clearly his 12 disciples don't understand it and don't like to hear it. Peter even rebukes Jesus for it. But this nameless woman, she is different. With her action, her anointing of Jesus, she seems to be responding to Jesus about what he's been saying. She gives him two answers. First, she declares Jesus her Messiah by anointing him. The Hebrew word Messiah literally means the anointed one. In Greek word, it's Christ. So by anointing Jesus, she confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, God's anointed. And with that same anointing, she also was preparing Jesus' body for burial ahead of time, as Jesus says in the story. It was their custom to use incense and perfume to prepare the bodies before um, burying them. So here, she becomes the first and only person in the book of Mark to acknowledge what Jesus has been saying about his death and responds positively to him. She hears Jesus, accepts the kind of Messiah he is, and honors him. Normally, it was the men with divine authority who anointed kings in Israel history. Like the prophet Samuel who anointed both King Saul and King David. But Jesus here is anointed by a nameless woman women with no importance, status, or title. And he was anointed as the Messiah and also for his death at the same time. I wonder what that says about the kind of Messiah, kind of king Jesus is. It makes sense to me that it was a woman who was prepared to accept Jesus' path to death before others, when the 12 disciples who presumably spent way more time with Jesus didn't understand or accept. Women in this culture, uh, 2,000 years ago, they were used to making room for others' needs and desires. They were used to bending their own expectations in life to accommodate others. Their life story taught them that they were expected to serve others and put others before themselves. So, and this perhaps trained them to tune into others' pains and needs and wants and learn that to love is to make room for others in yourself. So this woman opened her heart to Jesus, and because she loved him, she absorbed what Jesus was saying to them about who the Messiah is and what he has come to do, and let that move and change her. Instead of insisting on her own hopes and expectations like others were doing. Does that make her meek? Perhaps. But it is also the only way to love someone truly and deeply. It is not possible to really love someone without letting them touch you and change your heart, right? Without letting their pains and wants and needs move you. And perhaps that is why Jesus says in Matthew, the blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And meek she may be, but she is not without a sense of self. She is not saying whatever you say because she doesn't know herself or she doesn't have her own thoughts. Though silent, she is not mute. Her actions so bold and impossible to ignore, speaks so loudly what she wants to say. As a woman, she probably knew that what she was doing was outrageous and would draw criticism. She was scolded harshly. The fragrance of the perfume overpowering the room full of men. All the money, irretractable in an instant, with her breaking the jar open. Even the alabaster jar could not be salvaged. She expresses herself in this way the best she can, as loudly as she can, because this was her truth, and she needed to speak it. She's saying, I, to Jesus, I've considered the death that you speak of. And I'm still choosing to follow you. If you're saying that's where you need to go to get to the other side, let me make peace with it. Let me not only be okay with it, but honor you in that journey. Let me mark this time for us both and be part of it. Let this be my story as well. Without uttering a single word, she is so eloquent. And a pushover, she is not. This picture of fierce love and commitment is contrasted with Judas and other disciples and the religious leaders. They couldn't understand the kind of Messiah who would willingly go to death so they don't want to hear Jesus. They don't want him to talk about it. They rebuke Jesus for saying it. And Judas goes to the extreme. When he hears that Jesus praising this woman for preparing him for his death. When she wasted this expensive perfume instead of giving it to the poor. She, he's finally had it. He uh, he realizes Jesus is not the kind of Messiah he wants and expected. So he goes to the religious leaders who have been waiting to trap Jesus and arranges to sell him to be killed. Maybe he wanted the money himself, or maybe he wanted to help the poor even. But whatever the purpose was, Judas could not accept the picture of Of the wounded Messiah. He angrily turns away from it and rejects it. But what he did not understand and couldn't understand because he wouldn't let Jesus change his perspectives is that Jesus' journey to his death was not defeatist, it wasn't the end. It was a way to get to the other side, the only way to get to life in all its fullness. What follows next in the story shows us that the next part of story moves on to the day of Passover. And it looks it seems like it's a separate story from the women anointing Jesus, but I think they are connected. Jesus and his friends are gathered around the table, Passover meal. And as they eat, Jesus takes the bread, blesses it, breaks it, and gives it to his friends. He says, take it for this is my body. He shares the cup of wine with them and says, this is my blood poured out for you. He gives sustenance to his friends. And it also represents his life sustaining, and nurturing ours, the whole universe. We take communion on Sundays to remember this. But to get to the communion with Jesus, to receive from his body broken for us, his blood poured out for us, the burial has to come first. It's a package deal. Experiencing Jesus' life and power requires us to embrace his death and vulnerability, too. Sometimes we think of the cross and what happened on the cross as some kind of transaction where the price is paid. And as a result, we rid of our imperfections and our flaws And we become shiny, bright heroes to live heroic, spotless life. And therefore, nothing bad will happen to us. But that's not what Jesus is offering from the stories that we've been reading. He offers us his broken body. Jesus embraced death, made it part of life in coming to us as one of us, right? When he came to us as a fully human, even apart from the cross, when he came to us as a human being, he had already embraced death, mortality, vulnerability, because death is an inescapable part of being a human. And we too are invited to embrace this human and divine Jesus, this vulnerable and powerful Jesus, this humble and glorified Jesus. And in that, we receive life from him. In that, we find that we will be okay and that a way will open even when it is the darkest around us. We experience small deaths as we live, not just the final death that we move toward to. All the time, all around around us, we experience death. People we love need things from us. And to accommodate their sometimes overwhelming needs, part of us might have to die. I know many of us have experienced that. Or our own bodies might betray us and limit our potentials and our futures. Our dreams might die without blooming. Our expectations of how our life goes will take hits, unexpected turns, unseen holes where we might fall into, the ruts that we might get stuck in. following jesus is not so that we will never have to experience these deaths it is so that through these deaths we also experience new life it is so that through these deaths we're led to the other side surprised by love and grace that sustain us surprised by joy that we receive, surprised by this person that we are in communion with and the whole universe that connect us through him. So the first practical suggestion today is make peace with what is. A friend of mine once asked me, If I was a what-is-person or what-should-be-person, what-is-person recognizes the place they're in, the reality of how things are, and go from there. What-should-be-person tends to focus on what they want the reality to be, what they expect it to be. We probably are both of these things, need both of these things in different times, in different areas of your, our life. But when we are going through small debts, when we're faced with the seemingly immovable blocks, focusing on what should be will just drive us crazy. We've been there, right? <laughs> Coming to terms with what is first is important and wise and it helps us to stay sane. And from there, we're able to move forward. But that's easier said than done. And I speak from my own experience, sometimes it burns in us to just acknowledge the reality of what is. There's this fear and panic rise in us at all the bad things that could happen when things are not the way they should be. Can you relate to that? And I wonder if the women in the story felt that way, too, listening to Jesus talk about his impending death. It probably burned in her, too, the thought of losing him her beloved Jesus, whom, who gave her hope, who gave her life. Maybe her act of anointing Jesus was her way of reconciling with the reality, her way of choosing to stay in what is and making peace with it, it's sort of a ceremony to come to terms with the new reality. Things like that help sometimes. Sarah, one of our pastors at the river, my dear friend, once told me a story of doing something like this. I forgot to confirm the details with her, but I think I'm pretty close. She (laughs) told me the story of her moving to New York from Madison and how it was uh, hard emotionally for her to uh, let go of the things that she's had there. They had just moved into a new house, if I remember correctly. She loved her job, friends there, the life she built there. So one day, she went around in her house and said goodbye, picked up every object in the room, went to every room, picked it up, and said goodbye to it. And that helped her heart to get ready. For me, it's a little different. I am in a season of deep loss in my life right now and have been trying to make peace with what is myself. And what's been helpful for me is repeating this mantra like a prayer. The first part of the mantra is, it is what it is. Because most certainly, it is not what it is not. When I say it, I'm reminding myself where I am because I keep forgetting and getting used to and accepting where I'm at so eventually I can make peace with it. It is what it is. And the second part of this mantra is borrowed from a Quaker prayer, a way will open. I repeat to myself, It is what it is. A way will open. Which brings us to the second suggestion, which is follow Jesus out to the other side. Stay with him because he is the guide to the way out. He is the guide who will show us the way that we're not yet able to see. Continue to commune with him, converse with him, trust him and stay with him. And a way will open. And we take the bread of life and the cup of love that is the person of Jesus for us. As we do that, he will lead us to new life better than we've imagined. A full disclaimer here, which is in my current season, I haven't gotten there yet. I haven't seen a way opening. I haven't gotten to the other side. It is a struggle to keep trusting, keep following Jesus without seeing, without knowing. But though I'm still in the middle of it, so I can't tell you how it it will end. Praying this mantra and interacting with Jesus has increased my capacity to love and to change I feel like because to love someone is to love the person that is not the person that should be and still believe in them and hope with them so for that I am grateful So the last suggestion for this week is continue to pray. Let's continue to pray. Surprise me, Jesus. This prayer is beautiful when we don't see the way out. When it is dark around us, we need to be surprised because we don't see it. Surprise me, Jesus. Jesus, he's a good guide. A loving guide. I trust him to do good to me, to bless me, to lead me to life. I'm not a big surprise person, unlike (laughs) Vinayda. But I don't mind surprises from Jesus. So we have one week left for the 40 days of faith, the Lenten season. So let's keep asking Jesus to surprise us. And you can, of course, continue to pray this after the Lenten season, too. Not just the big surprises, like big resolution may that make all the problems go away, because that's really realistically not going to happen. There always will be some problems in our life. So not just the big surprises, but small surprises, too. The small surprises that sustain us along the way. Before I wrap up, I have one favor to ask. Some of us have been experiencing small and big surprises. As we've been going through this 40 days of of, uh, faith together this season, we've been having a lot of conversations online. It's been really fun to hear from um, everyone, um, many people, not everyone. Um, so, So for those of you who have been experiencing Jesus in some way, small or big surprises, if Jesus has been doing something different in your life, please share your story so we can all be encouraged and inspired from it. It is simple to do so. It's in the same place in our website where we've been doing read and respond, uh, reading the Bible passages and commenting on it every morning. There will be a link inviting you to share your stories in the comment, comment sections. You can simply go to River app. Click um, 40 days, and it will take you to the page. So please share your stories, and let's keep praying. Surprise us, Jesus. Let me pray for us. We see you, Jesus, and we follow you. Through where you're leading us is not easy and not always pleasant. So be our guide, our friend, our healer. As we move forward, it is what it is. A way will open. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that we're not alone. Amen.